welcome back to episode five of Over the Top, a great war podcast. This will be part three of the Huns of August series. How's everyone's autumn been so far? Myself, I can't believe the holidays are here. And for those in the U.S., Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away as I type this script out. And Christmas is just around the corner. I personally like Thanksgiving the best because it's a time where friends and family come together to truly show just how thankful we are to have everyone we care about in our lives. Though, one person I don't care much for is Christmas. No, not Lloyd Christmas, but Father Christmas. I usually tend to get depressed around that time of year, so the sooner it comes and goes, the better. However, one thing I won't be depressed about is the release of the movie 1917 on Christmas Day. A story about two British soldiers embarked on a mission to save 1,600 soldiers from certain doom. Directed by Sam Mendes, the director of Road to Perdition and the 007 movie Skyfall, which I found to be one of the better Bond movies. I'm really excited for this movie. When I've been recording, I've been really tense. After all, I'm working to put out the best episodes I can. I have to take the edge off, so as I'm recording this, I'm having a drink to hopefully put me at ease. And on this episode, I'm drinking a beer by Firestone Brewery out of Paso Robles, California called Napa Parabola. It's an imperial stout aged in wine barrels. It's 11%, so if this doesn't take the edge off, I don't know what will. But folks, you know why we're here? If you've been listening, then I think you know why. It's because the Germans have leveled the forts protecting the city of Liège, giving them access into France. The German 2nd Army under General von Bülow and the 3rd Army under General von Hausen now joined up with von Kluck's 1st Army as they advanced through Belgium, taking the city of Brussels and driving the Belgium Army back to Antwerp. They end up destroying towns like the beautiful city of Louvain while leaving blood trails from civilian killings. They took civilians hostage including women, children, and priests, thinking they were part of a resistance. In some cases, they lined them up and mowed them down with machine guns. They really had a thing for priests, thinking they were leaders of the supposed resistance. In G.J. Meyer's book titled A World Undone, he explains this perfectly by saying, quote, To the extent that such acts can be explained, not excused, but explained, they had tangled origins. In the Franco-Prussian War, the Germans had suffered significant casualties at the hands of Frank Tuars, civilian snipers, and guerrillas, some of whom were urged on by French priests. They were determined not to have a repeat, end quote. A Frank Tiroir is a French shooter, and I hope I'm saying that right, which I'm probably not, and I probably butchered. And that's why I'm drinking. Now, at this certain point in August, there's a lot taking place, and it can get confusing. So before I say what's going on over here and over there, let me introduce the third major power entering the Western Front the British Empire. On August 6th, about 80,000 British Expeditionary Force soldiers, along with 30,000 horses and over 300 field guns, began assembling in Southampton and Portsmouth. And on August 9th, in intervals of 10 minutes, ships began transporting the BEF to the port of Huen, France. For the British Navy, this meant the English Channel must be cleared and guarded from any German naval attack. A lot of preparation had to be done, which they did. The British kept their landing location so secret 
that the Germans didn't know exactly where they were until they met head-on at Mons almost a few weeks later. As the BEF began to land and assemble in Huen, they were greeted with tremendous cheers from the French citizens. Huen isn't a typical French city, but it's really cool. It's a big port city, so there's a lot to do with great food, bars, and fairly close to some really good war sites. If you're ever planning a trip to see any of the World War battle locations, you might want to think about staying a night to see the city. There's a delirium cafe right in the heart of city center if you're into good Belgian beers. There's a cathedral of Notre Dame, Huen, and much more. Anywho, let me get back on track. The BEF was a highly trained fighting force. The majority of the troops were volunteers who served for seven years, then often would be obligated to reserve status for another five years. Many of the soldiers gained experience from the Boer War, but this necessarily didn't mean they were fully prepared for the new modern warfare tactics. The BEF soldiers were armed with the bolt-action, short-magazine Lee Einfeld Mark III rifle. Introduced in 1907, a skilled rifleman could fire 15 rounds a minute with an effective range of 600 yards, depending how smooth he could operate the bolt. Here's a short clip of the Lee Einfeld being fired at a rapid-fire pace. Now here's a clip of it being fired at a steady aiming pace. The rapid fire pace will come into play soon for the BEF. Have you ever heard of the Mad Minute? If you haven't, the Mad Minute was a pre-World War bolt action speed shooting exercise used with the Lee Einfeld. You would get 15 rounds at a target, which I believe was roughly around 250 meters, maybe more. But the object was to see how many rounds you can get off and hit your target in one minute. People still do the Mad Minute test today. Keep in mind the rounds usually came in five round clips, so reloading was part of the test. This was an effective training method for British soldiers. Each battalion of Tommies was also equipped with either two Maxim machine guns or two Vickers machine guns. They were also equipped with 4.5 inch howitzers, which made for excellent quick field firing artillery. However, just like the French with its arsenal of 75s, the British too lacked in heavy artillery. So the Brits were welcomed with gracious cheers and welcoming arms as they made their way to their concentration area in Maubeuge. But you know who wasn't exactly welcoming the Brits with big hugs? Joffre, that's who. He wasn't too pleased after being told by Sir John French that the BEF wouldn't be ready to fight until August 26th. Joffre, knowing the Brits would put up a good fight, but weren't really involved in the overall big picture of his plans, decided to move onward without them. He urged French to get his soldiers ready to fight as quickly as possible and join Len Rizak's 5th Army on the French left flank. And as the British were preparing to fight, and the German 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Armies continued their push through Belgium, the French called upon the Russians to open the Eastern Front against the Germans on that side. In theory, this would cause Moltke to pull troops from the Western Front to support their Eastern Army, increasing the likelihood of a French victory in the West. Thought the world forgot about the Russians, didn't you? Nope, they're still there, and posing a major threat to Moltke in the East. And what about the Serbs and the Austrians? After all, those two countries are the reason why this war even started. I mean, the world kind of forgot about them. Their focus is more on the three powerhouses about to come face to face. Pretend you're watching two guys about to throw hooks in a bar. Guy number one has a big friend named Debo, 
And guy number two also has a big friend, and his name is Damon. Now Debo and Damon, the bigger guys, are about to throw blows and destroy the bar while doing it. I'm more than likely going to stop watching the little guys because the better fight is between Debo and Damon. Strange analogy, but I'm sure you get the picture. Well, the Serbs are kicking the Austrians' ass. There's no other way to put it. The Austrians aren't as prepared as they thought they were. They've been driven back in a humiliating fashion back across the border. The Serbs inflict 50,000 casualties upon the Austrians, with an estimation of 6,000 of them being KIAs. On August 17th, German and Russian troops came to blows at Stalubonin in eastern Prussia. The battle ends with neither side winning, but the Germans are forced to retreat. But not without taking 3,000 prisoners. Yes, 3,000 prisoners of war. You heard that right. How the hell are you going to have the resources to... What's the word I'm looking for? Care for these prisoners? Later on in the war, and I'm sure even at this point, often they just shot the prisoners because they didn't have the resources to play guard. And as the war went on, animosity had built up. They had seen some horrible shit happen to their pals, and they often would just shoot the prisoners to be done with them. On August 18th, four Russian armies enter Galicia, and on August 20th, they come to blows with the Huns again in eastern Prussia at a place called Gumbinin. Oh, I need a drink. I hope... I hope I said that right. Gumbinin. Gumbinin. They again punch each other into a bloody mess, but still, the battle ends inconclusively. The Germans pull back and the Russians don't follow. German 8th Army Commander Max von Prittwitz phones Moltke and reports that his army is in trouble and they must withdraw. Moltke, being too far from the front, he doesn't know what the hell is going on and doesn't turn down Prittwitz's request. The Germans pull back, however, the pot is beginning to boil in East Prussia. Now, back a couple days to August 14th. To coincide with the Russian attack in East Prussia, Joffre launched Phase 1 of 2 for Plan 17, the Alsace and Lorraine Offensive. The Battle of the Frontiers has begun. He launched his new attack force into Alsace, commanded by General Paul Powell. They would again take Mulhouse, securing the right flank close to the Swiss border. Alongside it would be the 1st Army under General Dubau, pushing through the Vosges Mountains, moving towards the Rhine, taking Sarborg and the 2nd Army under General Castanau would drive the left flank into the town of Morang, just northeast of Nancy. Phase 1 of Plan 17 was successful. The two armies along with the far right flank moved into their areas with little resistance, and Joffre was already looking at this as a soon-to-be victory. But, and I say this with a big but, this was all part of the Schlieffen Plan's overall tactic. They wanted to draw as many French soldiers away from Paris as possible, close them in from the front and back, then deliver the victory punch. The German 6th Army, commanded by Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria, and the 7th Army, commanded by General von Heringen, were doing just this. They would put up some resistance, then fall back, and the French would give chase. In the first three days of the offensive, the 1st and 2nd French armies will have been pulled into German territory up to 20 miles. On foot for soldiers, that's far, very far. And while the Germans kept up the overall tactic of baiting them in, they would unleash heavy artillery on groups of French soldiers, inflicting mass casualties, and then would continue to pull back. And the more the French armies gave chase, the more stretched out their lines had become, making them more vulnerable as major gaps became exposed. And it was at this point that Crown Prince Ruprecht 
pleaded to Moltke to let them go on the offensive and pounce them while the French were exposed. The opportunity was there. He felt now was a better time than ever to attack. On August 20th, Moltke gave Ruprecht his blessing, and a major German counterattack was launched on the French 2nd Army in Moring. The French 75s were being obliterated by the heavier German guns. Soon, the French infantry were left prey to those same bombardments even before German infantry had moved in on them. The French 2nd Army retreated in confusion, which then exposed the line of their 1st Army and then the far right flank in Alsace. By August 22nd, the same French armies that just made all those supposed gains were forced back to their original starting point. And let's not forget about the dead at this point. The armies didn't exactly call a timeout to police up the dead bodies to give them a proper burial. The dead bodies were often left to rot, which more than likely were feasted on by rats, or they were hastily thrown into a mass grave. And the treatment of the dead will go on like this throughout the majority of the war. Actually, I take that back. It'll get worse. And this offensive attack will expose a major mistake by the Germans. See, now that Ruprecht got a taste for blood, he wanted more. He had tunnel vision and all he could see was red. He wanted more blood. He needed to keep attacking. And Molka allowed him again to launch another offensive between Toul, which was west of Nancy, and Epinel, which is south of Nancy. But this time the French weren't overstretched across the frontier. They had, at this point, established defensive positions and gave the Huns heavy resistance for four long, brutal days. The French had consumed a number of German reserves, and their resistance they gave the Germans proved Ruprecht's decision on attacking to be a bad one. And now we move on to the second phase of Plan 17, the Ardennes Offensive. On August 22nd, the 3rd Army, led by General Ruffet, would move into Verton and Metz. The 4th, led by General de Carey, would move into Neufchâteau in the central Ardennes, and the 5th, led by General Lenrizac, would hold the line at the River Sambe and attack the German right wing when it appeared. Joffre's continued focus was to break through the German center and to cut off the German 2nd Army moving through Belgium. He still didn't take the threatening force on Lenrizac's left flank serious. This could also be because he knew the Brits were heading to help Lenrizac's left flank at Mons. The French 3rd and 4th would be met by Germany's 4th Army, commanded by Duke Albrecht von Württemberg, and the 5th Army, led by Crown Prince Wilhelm, who was the eldest child of the Kaiser and heir to the throne. Both German armies had slowly been moving through the Ardennes, while strategically placing entrenched machine gun teams along with dug-in German infantry, not to mention the heavy artillery. Now, the battle that took place on August 22nd wasn't just bloody, it was a slaughterhouse. But a couple of why factors need to be presented before we go on. First, the woody hilly terrain of the Ardennes was thick with fog that day, creating poor visibility for the French. Second would be the poor outdated uniforms worn by the French. See, the Germans were wearing a gray uniform with a gray helmet cover or gray cap, which blended in great with the heavy fog, making it difficult for the French to fight against. But the French were still wearing the uniform of their 19th century army. They wore these uniforms with bright red pants and a red hat with a blue overcoat, which wasn't exactly hard to see even in the fog. 
and the officers stood out even more. They wore bright white kepis and gloves. They looked like a bunch of damn circus clowns for this new type of warfare. Very poor decision in uniforms on the French part. Think about this. If you're on a German machine gun team at this time, and you see a large formation of red pants, blue coats approaching you, and they don't see you, it's open season. You just squeeze the trigger and watch the chaos unfold, and thank God you're not on the other end of that barrel. And at this point, we're also going to get into more personal accounts of the war. After all, as I stated in my introduction episode, the voice of the soldiers is what's most important. Their memory lives on with us. That's why I'm doing this. And thanks to Peter Hart's amazing book titled The Great War, there's a lot of personal accounts I'll be sharing for the remainder of this episode. The French 3rd Colonial Marine Division would suffer the highest casualties on August 22nd. Of the 15,000 soldiers, three quarters of them would be killed by German machine guns south of New Chateau. Six battalions launched attacks that morning but became confused as German bullets started raining down on them. They weren't able to see from which direction the firing was coming from because of the fog. A captain from the 1st Colonial Regiment describes the situation as the attacks are launched. Quote, We spotted some infantry in the bushes on our right. They soon fell back running. A voice cried out from our company, Don't shoot, they're French. Lieutenant Colonel Vitar beckoned me towards him, shouting out loud for the noise was deafening. Extend to the right and at them with the bayonet. I returned to my company and gave the command. Forward the 7th, fix bayonets. Followed by my four sections, I entered the woods as ordered. We moved quickly. On the road near to us, we could hear the bugles calling. It lifted the men. They were a superb sight. But the wood was thick, and as the sections advanced at varying speeds, soon I could no longer see all my company. We advanced 300 to 400 meters. The charge was hardly begun when it faltered under rapid fire at close range from the enemy sheltering behind earthworks. Several of the Germans wearing Silesian shakos were standing to get a better sight of us. One of them took a deliberate aim at me. His shot struck the sergeant at my side, but he himself fell almost simultaneously. The officers of the colonial troops did not wear the kepi cover, and their distinctive headdresses made them obvious targets. The fighting became confused. My sections were dispersed. I could not see my number two section. I looked back and saw that the number three and number four sections had not followed our advance. They were facing the road firing straight ahead. I could clearly hear the orders shouted, or rather bellowed, by the enemy commanders. I got the impression that my company was going to be split in two. A soldier came up and reported, Lieutenant Fischfoe is dead. He was the leader of the number one section. I set off immediately to the leading section with the aim of moving them towards the number two section but I barely had time to go a few steps before I got a bullet that hammered into the top of my left arm. The shoulder was shattered, my arm left hanging only by pieces of flesh. I fell half fainting. Captain Ignard, 1st Colonial Infantry Regiment. End quote. These bayonet charge attacks were ridiculous and had no place on this new battlefield. All it did was expose troops in the open to be torn apart by soldiers who were quickly adapting to this new warfare. You think they would have learned from the Franco-Prussian War, or hell, even the American Civil War. Even the soldiers of the North and South at some point said, screw this, I'm not charging out in the open, I'm firing from cover. Getting on the field of battle, lining up, and marching towards death with fixed bayonets was seen as an honorable way to die in the 19th century. They were just now catching on to the idea that honor didn't have a place on this battlefield.
As the fighting continued, the French were desperate for support, but the 75-gun teams were either too far behind to receive the calls for help, or they were too close and destroyed by the heavier long-range guns of the Germans. Either way, the French artillery didn't provide the support that was needed. These poor bastards. I can only imagine the confusion as the dead just continue to pile up. A captain from the 103rd Regiment described the situation. Quote, My company was sustaining heavy losses. Evidently, its action was hampering the enemy who concentrated the combined fire of its infantry, artillery, and machine gun fire on us. We were surrounded by heavy clouds, which at times completely veiled the battlefield from our eyes. Little Berger sprang up and shouted, Vive la France! at the top of his voice and fell dead. Among the men lying on the ground, one could no longer distinguish the living from the dead. The first were entirely absolved by their grim duty. The others lay motionless. The wounded offered a truly impressive sight. Sometimes they would stand up bloody and horrible looking amidst bursts of gunfire. They ran aimlessly around, arms stretched out before them, eyes staring at the ground, turning round and round until, hit by fresh bullets, they would stop and fall heavily. Heart-rendering cries, agonizing appeals, and horrible groans were intermingled with sinister howling projectiles. Furious contortions told of strong and youthful bodies refusing to give up life. One man was trying to replace his bloody, dangling hand to his shattered wrist. Another ran from the line, holding the bowels falling out of his belly and through his tattered clothes. Before long, a bullet struck him down. We had no support from artillery, and yet there were guns in our division and in the Army Corps, besides those destroyed on the road. Where were they? Why didn't they arrive? We were alone. Captain Alphonse Grasset, 103rd Regiment. End quote. The artillery gunners were confused. They had no idea which way to fire because the morning fog was so thick. All they could hear was the massive explosion of the German shells coming in closer. Imagine being hunkered down, not being able to return fire, and not knowing if you're next to get hit by an enemy shell. A gunner from the 11th Battery, 44th Regiment, describes the situation. Quote, Crouching behind the armored doors of the ammunition wagons and behind the gun shields, we awaited to open fire. But the captain... Kneeling down among the oats in front of the battery, his field glasses to his eyes, could discover no target for yonder over the spreading woods of the Eth and Atal, now occupied by the enemy. A thick mist was still floating. All around us, behind our guns, over our heads, and without respite, high explosive and shrapnel shells of every caliber kept bursting and stewing our positions with bullets and splinters. Death seemed inevitable. Behind the gun, was a small pit in which I took refuge while I waited the orders. A big bay-saddled horse with a gash in his chest from which a red stream flowed stood motionless in the middle of the field. With the hissing and whistling of the shells, the thunder of the enemy's guns, and the roar from the neighboring 75mm battery, it was impossible to distinguish the different noises in the shrieking inferno of fire, smoke, and flames. The battery became enveloped in black, nauseating smoke. Somebody was groaning, and I got up to see what was happening. Through the yellow fog, I saw Sergeant Theory stretched on the ground, and the six members of the detachment crowding around him. The shell had burst under the chassis of his gun, smashing the recoil buffer and effectually putting the piece out of action. Gunner Paul Lentier, 
11th Battery, 44th Artillery Regiment. End quote. At the end of the day, the French units started to retreat in mass confusion, panic, and terror. They had been demoralized not only from the defeat, but also from seeing what these new weapons of war were capable of, and even worse, knowing they had left wounded comrades on the battlefield to either fall into the hands of the enemy or be killed. A severely wounded private in the 77th Infantry Regiment describes the situation when he realized the wounded had been left for dead by their retreating comrades, saying, quote, All day I was fighting. I was slightly wounded by a bullet that went through my haversack, passed through my overcoat, scraped across my chest, and hit me in the hand. I showed the bullet to my friend, Marcel Lousseau, and put it in my wallet. I continued the fight until Lousseau was hit in the leg and we see my lieutenant cut through by a bullet. The fight goes on. A lot of my friends lying dead or wounded all around me. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, while shooting at the enemy occupying a trench 200 meters from front of me, I was hit by a bullet in the left side. I felt a terrible pain as if I'd broken a bone. The bullet passed through the whole of my body, through the pelvis and lodged above the knee. Immediately I was suffering greatly with a burning fever. The bullets continue to rain down all around me. I may be hit again, so I do my best to drag myself into a hole. I find it hard to gain any comfort. The fight is over. All my comrades have retreated, and we, wounded, are left without care, dying of thirst. What an awful night. Nothing but more shooting. Every sound made by the wounded triggered a resumption of fire. Machine guns swept the ground, bullets flying over my head but they can no longer touch me in my hole. Thirst tortures me more. As I suffer, I think about my parents, especially my mother, remembering when I was sick and very young. It wasn't only me thinking of their mothers, for I could hear the wounded and dying calling out for their maman. Private Desiree Renault, 3rd Battalion, 77th Infantry Regiment. End quote. Later on, that private would be picked up by the Germans and made prisoner. Outside of being killed on the battlefield, I can't think of anything worse than laying on the ground wounded, fighting for your life only to look and see your own side retreating. You have to take yourself back to that time era. It wasn't exactly like they had some high-speed medical kit and some painkillers. If they weren't picked up as prisoners or executed, and of course, if no help was coming, you suffered until the reaper came and snatched you up. They had to lie there and accept the inevitable. This private had a bullet tear through his pelvis, then come to a halt above his knee. The pain had to have been agonizing. And then throw in the fact that while he was laying there dying, all he could think about was how did his life come to this? Why isn't anyone coming to help? Talk about feeling of abandonment. However, in this case, luck was on the side as he was picked up to become a prisoner to the Kaiser's army. And how about the psychological effect? How about the soldiers who made it through this battle unscathed, who could hear their dying comrades and do nothing about it? This must have haunted them for the rest of their lives if they ever made it home. A lieutenant describes the situation as the day came to an end and the night fell on the frontier. Quote, Night fell. The cold became intense. This is the time, when the battle is over, that the wounded that we haven't found yet cry out loud in their pain and suffering. And these shouts, these plaintive cries, these moans tormented all those who can hear them, and especially cruel punishment for soldiers who must stick to their posts. 
when all they wanted to do was run to the gasping comrades, to tend to them, to comfort them. But they cannot. They must remain static, weighed down by a heavy heart, raw nerves, actually trembling at the unceasing frantic calls in the night. Drink. Are we going to let me die here? Stretcher bearers. Drink. Stretcher bearers. I hear one my men say. Yes. What the bloody hell are they doing? The stretcher bearers. They only know how to hide. Those pigs. It's like the police. You never see one when you need one. And before us, the dark shadow seems to groan with all the wounds that bled and were not dressed. Faint voices, weary from crying out. What have I done to get killed in this war? Mother. Oh, mother. Jean. Little Jean. Oh, say that you can hear me. My Jean. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. The cries appall us. They cut us to the quick. I don't want to die here. Oh, God. Stretcher bears. Stretcher bears. Bastards. Is there no one with any pity? A German. He can't have been more than 20 meters away, in tones. Kamerad Franzos. Kamerad. Kamerad Franzos. And lower down, pleading. Hilfe. Hilfe. His voice bends, breaks and quavers like a crying child. Then his screeching grows, and all night long he was like a dog howling to the moon. It was a dreadful night. Lieutenant Maurice Genevieve, 106th Infantry Regiment. End quote. The Battle of the Frontiers was turning out to be a bloodbath for the French. Joffre wanted to renew the offensive, but it was halted by the fact that the majority of his army had fled back to their original starting point. Reorganizing his confused soldiers would take time. The Huns had brought Plan 17 to a complete stop along a 75-mile stretch that ran from Givet to Verdun. A new French 6th Army was being created out of their reserves. An estimated 27,000 French soldiers died on the 22nd of August. And all the offensive attacks up to this point cost the French over 200,000 casualties and over 75,000 deaths in just a few days worth of fighting. We're not even a full three weeks into this war. I think you can see where this is going at this point. For the German and French armies, this is no longer the glory of war. This is the horrors of war. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here, folks. I honestly thought I was going to get into the British entering Mons during this episode. But hey, that's okay. This will be perfect for episode 6, along with more Great War history. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I've been getting some wonderful feedback about OTT. I would like to say thank you, and I really appreciate all the kind words through social media and email. If you're on social media and you haven't done so, please follow me on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on Facebook. Please leave me a review on whichever platform you're listening to the show on. You can also email the show at OTTGWPodcast at gmail.com. Take care, everyone. <laughs>